my privilege today to bring you the last sermon in this series on 1 Peter. I, I'm like Simon, I really like 1 Peter because he's blunt and to the point and I can appreciate a bit of bluntness because I find when things aren't blunt, I try to find wiggle room. But I find with 1 Peter, there's not a lot of wiggle room because he says what he says and he means what he says. And it's really clear. This week, as we look at 1 Peter 5, I've called this sermon Stand Firm because that's very much what the whole book has been about. It's been about standing firm under persecution. When things aren't going well, when things are coming against you, stand firm. Now, the whole notion of standing firm is actually really interesting. I'm going to tell you a story from my past. I'm not sure. How, I think it's relevant. So just come with me. Many years ago, I went to a training session. It was a group of people supporting kids with behaviour problems. So reasonably stressful. And the middle session, the, the boss lady got up and said, I've done something different today. I've got somebody to help us to be centred. So this guy came up with another guy and he had on what was, I don't know what you call them, not hair and pants, men don't wear them. But, you know, he had on sort of unusual clothes, obviously very Middle Eastern in, in direction. And he talked all this stuff, which I didn't agree with. But it wasn't a point to argue, really. It, it wasn't the situation. Then at the end, we said, we're all going to stand in a row and I'm going to ask you to be centred. And here's how you do it. You had to concentrate on this spot in the pit of your stomach. He said, then you're going to relax and I'm going to come and I'm going to give you a little push. I'm going to do it before you do it and after you do it. And you're going to find that when you're centred, you're much harder to push over. So I said, okay. So I thought, I'm not going to think about some spot inside my gut. That's not where my centre is. My centre is not within. It is without. My centre, I pray with all my heart that is my total centre, is Jesus and the Word of God. So I, I concentrated on the Word of God and I thought about the Word of God and I said, God, I just want to stand firm. So they came around, he pushed me and I didn't fall over. So he pushed me harder and I didn't fall over. Then he got his mate, he said, do you mind if we touch you? Thought, that, that's an interesting thing. So it was back before everybody was as careful. I said, yeah, sure. So he went out the back and felt all my muscles. And the other guy said, no, he's relaxed. And then the guy said to me, well, you are extremely centred. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. I'm looking out. I'm looking beyond myself to something else. But I don't know if that story makes sense to you, but it makes sense to me in the terms of standing firm because God wants us to stand but we don't stand by looking within. We stand by looking out. We don't stand by getting ourselves in a point where we're so focused on just being us. We get to stand firm by following the example of Jesus, by setting our mind on the things above, not the things within. Because I know if I stood and concentrated my gut at that stage, I didn't enjoy lunch very much. I know what I would have been thinking about. I would have been thinking about the rumbles and the gurgles and that I really would like to go home and have a nice cup of coffee. No. Stand firm is about thinking about the things above, about Jesus and about his example. So let's get into the book. And I would like you to think about now standing firm from Peter. 
what's happened is in chapter 4, we see in 4.12, it says, in the light of suffering, all these things follow. And then it, then it says, the judgment is going to begin with God. This is in the previous chapter. And these things follow on from that. In other words, in the light of suffering and knowing that the judgment of God will begin with believers, these are the things. So I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfound, unfading crown of glory. First of all, he talks to the elders. And by it doesn't say olders. Because I know a lot of olders who are no way they could be elders. It's talking about the elders, which are people who should be mature in God, who should be at the heart and mind in tune with what God wants. I've had elders I have worked under who have been young people but have had that deep spiritual maturity. So it's talking about those sorts of elders and it's saying how they should do it. They should be a shepherd. I love that term shepherd. It is so, con it is so complex. A shepherd is not somebody who walks in front of sheep so the sheep follow. A shepherd does a lot more than that. He guides the flock. He protects the flock. He looks after the flock. He keeps the flock together. He, he fights the enemy that comes against the flock. He also, if you really read what they did in those days, he disciplines the flock. He actually has a very active role in the protection and looking after the flock. And he has oversight, which means he has to look at what's happening around and what's happening within and has to exercise that authority. I've read, I read some great commentaries during the week and some great stuff on this passage. And some of the old books, the way they put it, it it's not made for weak nor jelly-kneed persons. It's not made for somebody who is not willing to step out in front of the congregation and fight the wolves. So it's quite a requirement, isn't it? It's that sense that there's a huge responsibility but it's not a responsibility just to be nice. It's not a responsibility just to be the loving, gentle nurturer. It's the responsibility to be the shepherd who protects and looks after the sheep. How's it to be done? I love this bit too. Not under compulsion. Willingly. In other words, you have to be able to say before God, I, I want to do it and I'm happy to do it. You can't say look, you're the only person we've had, you will have to do it. And then say, okay, I'll do it. Because the attitude's wrong from the start. It's actually a calling. To be an elder, it's a calling from God. God has to lay it on your heart that, to lead and to do it, and to do it under God's power. It can't be for, I like some of the old things say, shameful gain. In other words, it's not done for money. Having pastored churches in the past for many years, I want to tell you now, if you're doing it for the church, it's not a profitable business. It's not a good way to earn money. Because what your heart should be is your heart should be that 
God, I freely receive, but as I freely receive, I also freely give. My heart is for the world, for the church, for the people, not for my pockets. And that has to be the attitude of elders too. And as, as you see, when people try to make money or become rich from being a pastor, it's not often not a good thing because their focus comes off God onto the wrong things. Now, we need to be focused on God and focused on him. Will he provide for you as an elder? Yes, he does. Is he generous? Of course God is generous. Will you live a good life as you offer yourself to God? Very likely. That's God's journey for you. And last one is not lording over or domineering. This one is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it's very easy to see somebody doing something you shouldn't do, and you know God says to you, look, that's, that's not right. And you can go and get stuck into them. But that's not really, I believe, the role of a shepherd. The role of a shepherd is like that of a parent. You can advise, you can help, but what can't you do with your kids? You can't stop them making their own mistakes. Because you're a 20-year Christian doesn't mean your kids, when they become Christians, are 20-year Christians. It means that they're little people. So it's a case of helping, assisting, but also appreciating that everybody's on a journey. And they have to be looking for a reward, but the reward is the one to come. And this is a really good one, looking for Jesus' return and knowing then that they will receive an unfading clown. Oh dear, an unfading crown of glory. I find that very hard to say. And you have to know that as a pastor, as an elder, you have to be looking for the future because the reward is quite likely not to be now. Because while it can be fun to be an elder, I tell you what, there's a lot of hassle. There's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of things you have to face. It has to be a calling and you have to be looking to the future. I can't get all my sense of worth and feelings by being told by the congregation I preached well. Because a lot of the time I mightn't. I have to get it by knowing that I have done what God wanted me to do, whether you liked it or not, and that God will reward me in the future. I have to be focused, and the elders and pastors have to be focused on what God would have the church move, not how the people necessarily all at that time feel they should move. That's what a shepherd does. The shepherds say, no, that grass over there is for next week. We're going to the not-so-good grass over there first because that's the way God wants it. So we have to be willing to accept that. Then it goes on, 1 Peter 5, 5-7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is an interesting scripture. It basically says that people under elders should submit to the elders. Who likes submission? No one. It's very contrary to our nature to submit to anything. Why? What do we learn in our lovely age today? I'm the boss of me and I will look after me. And unless I look after me, nobody else will. 
Well, the scriptures take a slightly different view. We need God to look after us and we need to put other people first. And then in part of that, we need to submit to those in authority. If we then move to Romans 13.1, how true is this? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I find this one, it's a consistent note of Scripture, isn't it? Submit to the people in authority over you, even if they're not godly. It's easier in the church than it is in the government. Because in the church, if you don't think your leaders are walking with God, do you know what you can do? Find somewhere else where they are. But with the government, you're stuck. But the reality is, it's a basic thing of the scriptures that we should submit to those in authority. Okay, submission does not mean meekness. It doesn't mean quietness. If you have a problem, you raise it. If you have a question, you ask it. I've been in situations where I've been in disagreement, we shall say, with the pastor, and it's normally ended in tears. And the tears have been mine when I have gone and prayed, God, what should I do? And God has normally said to me, I've made them the pastor. They're an authority over you. You should bend your knee. Anyone who wants to talk about that later, there's all nuances and stuff. It's, it's a deep and big topic. But anybody wants to talk to me about it, come and talk later and I'll, I'll explain where I'm coming from. And why? What's the trouble with submission? Of course, the whole notion that we have trouble with humility. We need to humble ourselves. I liked it. One of the commentary I read said, a concept despised in both ancient and modern worlds is humility. Why? Because the world has a wrong sense of humility. world has a sense that humility means losing. It means saying, I'm no good. It means saying, oh, everyone's better than me. It's almost like depression. That's not God to humility. God to humility is much deeper than that. God to humility is about knowing who you are before God and knowing that God is the ruler over you. God is the one. God is the person that guides and directs. And saying, I know who I am. I know what I am. And here is my place. And I'm happy with my place. I'm happy now to submit to Simon. Why? Simon is the pastor. I am no longer the pastor. So if Simon says we're going in this direction, what is the answer? Fine. Does it hurt my pride as a father? It shouldn't. Because God has given us, I pray, hearts that are willing to do it. And you clothe yourselves with the garment of humility. This is a really interesting one. This, if you're in this world, that would have rammed the statement home. What happened was there was an apron that was worn only by slaves. And the term here refers to that apron. So in other words, we are to put on the apron of a slave. That's pretty full on, isn't it? But that's basically what the scripture says. Because we see here too that God opposes the proud and extends his grace to the 
humble. So you want God's grace? Be humble. You want God's grace? Seek him for the freedom to live a life as he would have it. Seek him for his spirit to guide you so that you can be the person of God he would have you be. So there's some words here. Humble yourself. Under God's hand, that he might exalt you when? At the proper time. But humble yourself, having cast all your anxieties on him. Often pride is the self-defense mechanism. If I'm not if I act humble, people might get to me. They'll think I'm no good. I've got to protect myself. But what this is saying, be humble and all the worries and all the cares and all the things that are going to come against you, give them to God. This is not the humility of introspective depression. This is the humility of freedom from the worries. This is the humility of the freedom to hand over, to give, to express it out. Then in 5, 8 to 11, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace of the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. There's some imperatives there. These commands are given in the aterist tense. They're actually given in a tense which basically says, well, if you want the, the whole thing there, they're the aterist active imperative. Isn't that a great name for a tense? I love this tense. In other words, they're verbs that you've done in the past but you're going to continue to do. So it's not something that's done and then finished. It's something that you decide upon, then you continue. And these are to be sober-minded. In other words, in the past you have decided to be sober-minded and you're going to live like that. Again, sober-minded is a great command. It does not mean grumpy and boring. It does not mean wowzer. It does not mean the person that stands in the corner with their arms folded saying, I do not approve of anything. It is none of those things. Sober-minded means the opposite of not sober-minded. When you aren't sober-minded, when you imbibe alcohol, what happens? The world becomes blurry. Your inhibitions disappear. You don't make fact-based decisions. You make decisions based on who knows what, your impulse control disappears and you act out of things that you often regret later. Sober-minded is when your mind is focused on the truth, you see the truth and you make your decisions based on the truth of God. So for a Christian to be sober-minded is not to be the grump, it's actually be moving around with their mind and their heart focused on God's grace. The sober-minded is not the angry, grumpy person. He's the gracious person that's taken in God's grace and is choosing to see the world 
as God would see it, through grace and love. It's the person who goes out and something happens against them and how do they, they don't punch out, act out, go out. Do you know what they do? They extend God's forgiveness because as they have a sober mind to look at it, they know that God's words tell them, forgive as I've forgiven you. It says to pass on God's grace and God's wonder. That's the sober-minded man. The sober-minded man knows the joy and the happiness of God's grace. The sober-minded man is not the man who's saying, oh, it's all bad, it's all bad. It's the man who's saying, I'm bound for eternity. I have a wonderful God who is here with me now. I have a God that loves you and has something for you as well. I have the God of hope with me in all times. So we need to be that sober-minded man. We need to have our hearts and our minds set on those things. And the sober-minded man is also watchful. What's the point of being watchful? Well, there's things in the world that can come against you. I can speak from experience. I worked for years in, with kids with behaviour disorders and stuff, at times in special schools. I've worked in psych hospitals. I've worked with kids who've been in there for serious, serious, serious violent crimes against people. I've worked with kids who were, well, I've come home, I remember coming home one day with, with no buttons on my shirts whatsoever. I've worked in places where you had to have a change of clothes in case yours got ripped. And I tell you one thing I learned to be was watchful. If I'm in a room even now, I can tell you where most people I know in that room are. I can tell you when kids go out the door, who's gone out the door, if it happens anywhere near me. I have this state of, not hyper alert, but I am watchful and intend to my environment. And I believe as Christians we should be the same. We should be watchful. Not just the world can hurt us, but we should be watchful because there's times when somebody needs God's grace. When somebody needs us to reach out and give them a kind word. When somebody needs us to, to fulfill the role that Jesus would do and say, come on, God loves you. It's good. There is grace. There is hope. There is life. Here you are. You need something. I can supply it. I can give. We need to be watchful so that we can help. I, I love it how our world so often deems this concept of watchful and sober-minded to be more negative. But I pray that as well as being watchful to protect and to keep safe and to really be able to negotiate the world, that we are watchful and mindful and sober-minded so that we can act as Jesus would. So as we're walking down, I, I love the example of the, the, the woman with the issue of blood who I think she, when she, she tugged on his robe or something minor. He's in a crowd. Jesus was watchful. He felt he knew that somebody in need was just very gently there. And what did he do? He was, because he was watchful, sober-minded, doing the will of God, he could extend his love and his grace to the one that needed it. Wouldn't you love to be that person? that sees, knows, and acts. Then in verse 9, we get another one of these words, resist. We're seeing that the, the devil's walking around, roaring, looking for people to resign. We should resist. It's another one that we have to do in the past and keep on doing. To stand firm 
you have to resist. I don't know about the other parents here, but one of the things I tried to teach my kids as they grow up, as they were growing up, was the ability to say the word no. A lot of people cannot say the word no without giving a lot of reasons, without giving a lot of excuses. I want to encourage you today to learn both in a spiritual sense and a human sense just to be able to say no. Not going to. Or just no. It's the most powerful word you can do. When temptation comes, you don't need to make it, oh, I don't know, I'd like to, but I really shouldn't. We have to learn just to say no. When the bloke comes and says, let's go out and do something really stupid, you don't need to give a reason. What do you need to do? Just say no. And I want to encourage you to know that we have to resist and we have to learn and empower ourselves to say no. That's part of the humility of God, isn't it? As we humble ourselves before God, as we focus on God, we see right from wrong, we look at it sober-mindedly, and we know that the answer to the devil and the things that prowl around to get us is nothing more than no. Then we finish with, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So who is she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Again, the final note sums up this book. It is to stand firm. Stand firm. The whole book has been written to a church with problems, a church under persecution, and it has been saying, take the example of Jesus. And as you take this example of Jesus, know his grace and stand firm in his grace. It means humbling yourself and just living in that grace and doing nothing else but living for God. So in the light of the suffering, in the light of the judgment that's to come, remain humble, submit to God and those in authority over you, and stand firm. As I was reading this, I thought, I used to read a lot of history. Well, I was a history teacher. Not that I ever taught it, but I'm a history teacher. And I read a lot of history of battles. And battles that go badly tend to be when everybody does not do the job they have been specified to and does not follow the plan. Battles go very badly when people go off and break rank and do their own thing. So I want to tell you, we're in a battle and we need to stand as an army. We need to stand firm together, supporting each other. Together with the devil prowling around, sober-minded, and loving, supporting, and moving each other and building each other up in the Spirit of God. That's the way to stand firm. Also, as we stand firm, it becomes evident to the world outside. So I tell you what, when I was taking you all the way back to that example, I'd been listening to this nonsense for a session, and I'd been keeping my mouth shut because it wasn't mine to speak. 
But when they finally said, gee, you, you know, you're obviously very centred, guess what that was? That was the opportunity to speak and to say, yeah, I stand firm, not because of being centred. I stand firm because of my Saviour and my God. Take the opportunity. Stand firm and let people wonder at who and what you are in Christ and how they too can have the strength, the passion and the future that you have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just pray that you do guide us and help us to be men and women who follow Jesus sober-minded. Men and women who are alert and ready to both protect ourselves and to help, to extend your grace, to give your grace, to extend your love. And I pray, Father, that you're in your loving hands you help us to grow ever closer, to be empowered by your Spirit, to live and grow into who you would have us be as a mighty army in Jesus.